This is Made at UCL, the podcast, bringing you closer to the UCL research answering life's big questions. From engineering to art, healthcare to space exploration, ancient artefacts to the technology of the future. Hello, I'm Susie and I graduated from UCL this year with a degree in arts and sciences. Most people choose to focus on one subject at university, but I couldn't pick just one thing. I've always been interested in just about any subject I could get my hands on, even maths. I wanted to read every book in the library to find answers to questions I didn't know existed. I tried my best, but there's a lot of books. Now UCL has asked me back to make this podcast for you, which suits me just fine because now I get to tiptoe into every corner of the university and leave no page unturned. And I'm taking you with me. I initially chose the stories for this first episode because they all seemed to be about appearances. But as I talked with the academics behind them, I realised that a first glance is too fleeting. Often, knowledge only reveals itself when we question what we think we already know and take a second look. First, we're hearing from Professor Mark Thomas. Mark is an evolutionary geneticist here at UCL And last year, he and his colleagues got their hands on Britain's oldest complete skeleton. They wanted to sequence his DNA to find out what he could tell us about our evolution. Cheddar Man, found in Cheddar Gorge in Somerset, also home to my favourite cheese, lived in Britain 10,000 years ago. But as interesting as excavated bones might be, what the researchers were really excited about is what Cheddar Man could tell us about farming. From an archaeological point of view, farming is an extremely interesting, well-studied area. Now, the fundamental reason for that is because it is such a major change in the way humans live. One of, if not the biggest changes since humans first walked the Earth. So prior to farming, virtually nobody in the world could digest the sugar in milk as an adult. Now, about a third of people in the world, as adults, can happily, merrily digest the sugar in milk. And that's a trait that's evolved since farming arose. We had a Wellcome-funded project broadly interested in human evolutionary history in the British Isles over the last 10 or 20,000 years. So the broad idea was to get DNA from the bones of British people over a time span of around 10,000 years and then to look for which bits of our genomes have changed um, the most rapidly. And we were interested in various things. So we were interested in Firstly, the process by which farming came to Britain. Um, There's been a long debate for over 100 years about whether it was brought to Britain by people, so as a uh, migrating people, or whether it was just the spread of ideas to the indigenous people um, that lived in Britain. So Cheddar Man was one of our samples. He happens to be the oldest near-complete skeleton found in Britain. He lived around 10,000 years ago. So that was before farming came to Britain. That was about 4,000 years before it arrived. So at that time, Britain was occupied by hunter-gatherers. So if we have DNA from Cheddar Man and his ilk, so from other hunter-gatherers prior to farming, and then we get DNA from early farmers as they come into Britain, we can then ask the question, is there kind of genetic continuity? Are the early farmers actually descended from those hunter-gatherers or 
are they descended from farmers that we know were spreading across Europe over the last nine to 6,000 years? So when we want to get DNA out of um, a dead person, turns out that the best place to extract it from is a bone called the petris bone, which is a small bone just inside the inner ear. We drill into the skull and just get scrapings, a small amount of, of drill shavings, of dust, as it were, from the petris bone. And then we put it into various chemicals that dissolve away the bone, but don't damage DNA, so they leave DNA behind. And then we can put that DNA into very, very advanced machines that enable us to read very large amount of that DNA that we've extracted from that bone. The first important thing about Cheddarman is that he yielded quite a lot of DNA and quite a lot of DNA information. So, for example, we looked at the gene that affects whether he can digest the sugar in milk as an adult. Unsurprisingly, he couldn't, because we know that he's a hunter-gatherer. He's a pre-farming hunter-gatherer, and we know that that trait evolved after the arrival of farming. One set of genes that we did look at were genes that affect pigmentation, particularly eye pigmentation and skin pigmentation. Now, I should make it clear that we don't know all the genes that affect pigmentation and different variants of genes affect pigmentation in different populations. But we do know some of the real major ones, some of the ones that have a really big effect. And we were able to look at those in Cheddar Man. And he came out as having light, probably blue eyes, but very dark to black skin pigmentation. Now, that was a surprise to a lot of people. I must confess that we had our suspicions that would be the case. And the reason we had our suspicions was because hunter-gatherers from Europe showed somewhat similar patterns. Now, at the time, a television company had become interested in the work we were doing and wanted to make a program about it. And they were a lot more surprised. And I suppose what they're really doing is they're reflecting the fact that the public would be surprised that one of the most iconic ancient humans from Britain was effectively black-skinned. They made this TV programme, they did a press release, and it was accompanied by this beautiful reconstruction of Cheddar Man made by the Kennis brothers. So that just hit the news. I mean, it was on the front page of virtually every newspaper. So, okay, fine, um, for some reason people found that really interesting or surprising. But then I went on some of the online pages where, of course, the public then gets comment. One of the funniest ones was the Mail Online, where there's a whole lot of, you know, things like, is political correctness gone mad? Oh, I haven't heard that before. Next, they'll be saying that Jesus had a dark skin because he was from the Middle East. Where did that come I mean, probably did. You know, what's the big deal there? There is no way we could know what they would look like. You need a time machine. This is rubbish. So it's like, well, no, you just need some DNA from them. I actually bothered to respond to one of them where it said something along the lines of, these scientists are just trying to destroy our identity. 
I just, you know, that just bewildered me. I, I, I couldn't help myself. So I think I responded by saying something along the lines of, if your, um, if your identity is based on the skin pigmentation of some West Country bloke from ten thousand years ago, then maybe you need to rethink it. I mean, skin pigmentation is primarily determined by two forms of melanin, and they absorb the damaging wavelengths of ultraviolet. So it's a protector. When populations live at higher latitudes, there's less ultraviolet. And for one reason or another, they've evolved lighter skin pigmentation. Probably the main reason for that is because when you're at higher latitudes, most people in the world get most of their vitamin D not from food, but from the action of sunlight. When you're at high latitudes, like Britain today, it's very difficult for most of the year to make any vitamin D from sunlight. It's just the sunlight's simply not strong enough. And so one way to make more vitamin D is to have lower skin pigmentation. Cheddar Man didn't need that because he would have had a diet that was rich in vitamin D. Populations, when farming started, people ate less meat, less fish, um, more grain. That's low in vitamin D. They would have needed to make more vitamin D through the action of sunlight. So having lighter pigmentation would help that. I think we all are susceptible to something called confirmation bias, which is that we take a view for one reason or another, and then we simply go on some odyssey, cherry-picking what we can learn and only learn things that support our views and reject things that, um, that argue against our views. Having said that, I think it is extremely important, of course, to get information out that in some way equips people to argue against these quasi-racist views. You know, information about how we're all related. And, you know, so fundamentally, the, you know, the, the, the web of human relatedness is extremely tightly spun and you know getting across these ideas i think can help this is merely a byproduct of our brigo research question as all scientists do we wrote this up as a um, scientific publication and the primary focus was of course on was farming brought to Britain by migrating farmers or was it spread as an idea to the indigenous population? And we, we showed very conclusively that it was brought to Britain by migrating farmers. The pigmentation thing, the eye and skin pigmentation thing, it's just a footnote, really. I mean, we've mentioned it, but it wasn't, it, you know, from a scientific point of view, it's just not that surprising. Um, but from a media point of view, it, it was, you know, it did seem to get some attention. reaction to the response to his research made me think about how media and science interact. Often, the stories we see reported focus on attention-grabbing headlines and miss out key research findings. Throughout this series, we'll be rectifying that by focusing on what it is that researchers themselves feel is important about their work. Later in the episode, we'll be unearthing more skeletons as we take a second look into the reliability of forensic research. But first, I want to take you underground specifically to the London Underground. Through ticket gates, down escalators and between closing doors, there is a whole life that you may not have noticed before. 
In 2010, Dryden Goodwin, professor at UCL's Slade School for Fine Art, was invited to document some of that life by Transport for London's Art on the Underground. Dryden spent up to an hour with 60 individual Jubilee line workers, drawing them as they manned lively stations and drove trains down dark tunnels. He made a short film for each of the 60 drawings as they took form and recorded the conversations that took place as he put pencil to paper. We've put together some of these recordings for you now, joining Dryden and Tracy by the ticket gates at Canary Walk. One neighbour upstairs, funny enough, she, she always calls me Audrey Eckberg because yeah. of my cheekbones and my long neck. And my daughter has got exactly the same, but she's extremely beautiful. She's absolutely stunning. Because my cheeks are so big, especially when I smile, I'm like poor man's version of Julia Roberts. <laughs> so my face, to me, feels out of proportion. Not a lot of white people have such full lips, apart from possibly Angelina Jolie. She's getting paid more money than I am for these lips. <laughs> Look like me. Uh, give it time, give it time. So you're gonna think I'm dark skinned? You, you, you don't have a problem with. <laughs> <laughs> That's light, man. It's light and dark. So if it was a white person, would you put it as much pencil on? Yeah, if they were in, in if shade. They had shady, shady. If they had light on them, it's all about the light. I'm trying to. Yeah, yeah, it's the light. I'm trying to do the light. Oh, I, I make music. Hey. So I'm like a music artist. Um, R&B, soul, I'm getting into pop at the moment. Just natural, just, I hear beats and I just, like when I hear a beat, I, I, I think of what goes over it. My dictaphone closed, so if I hear it, we're like, boom, 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 you know what I mean? And then we go to the studio and try and create it. So yeah, That's this cool. job is really good for creating music, is getting inspiration as well. This train is now ready to depart to the stations to the We've had um, brand new trains on the Central Line, brand new trains on the Jubilee Line, brand new trains on the Northern Line, brand new trains being introduced on the Victoria Line. Brand new trains for the Met and refurbishment on the Hammersmith and City and District. It, just to be part of that is just, you know, we're only on Earth for about, what, 80 years on, on the whole? In 100 years' time, they'll be saying, the Jubilee Line extension was opened up and extended to Stratford. And, and you know, that's very exciting to be part of a history and historical factor of that. I'm retired. I'm retired. I'm only doing part-time now. The changes, the development. They are quite different. A different world, I see. To me, everything is better, to me. This part-time has helped me. So staying at home and looking at the four walls keeps me going and I'm glad for that. Within the first year of me working here, a gentleman come down the escalator, had a massive heart attack, 40 minutes before an ambulance service got here, 30 minutes we was trying to do CPR, uh, save this guy's life. It hit me pretty hard, not because, I mean he wasn't really an old guy and he was quite fit and everything, but it was just the fact that he was coming up to Christmas and 
he died. And I'm sitting there thinking, guys, I can't let this man. So I held his hand. It was it was really awful, but I held his hand because, and I said to the police when they was like taking our information, I went, please just let his family know that he didn't die by himself. That someone held his hand and talked to him and said his name because I do not want them to think that their father, their husband, their brother died on an empty platform with people all around him and no one caring. Very close. Yeah, I can see. I've just got part of my chin missing. Part of your chin? It was a bit part. Yeah. It could be a shadow. Could be a shadow. Could be. I don't think I've ever had a man look at me so deeply as you do. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's quite. I have to say, answer your number would go away. I don't know. Look at concentration. I say this when we stop. Yeah, unfortunately, when I'm concentrating, I'm very. Yeah, very fast. It's great. Look, can you see it in the. It's just. It's just... Oh wow! Oh yeah. god! I look like Bodicea. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fantastic. How do I get out of this? Yeah. Go out through the trades once. Bodicea. Right. Where that little sound there? Like Tracy, Claude, Peter, Ashanti, and Sue, sharing moments of their lives with Dryden as he sketched their portraits Drawing someone you've never met before results in an intense encounter and enables a unique intimacy to develop. As the portraits unfold, so too does the openness in the conversation. Linear is all about different types of connection. If you'd like to see the drawings, a selection are featured on our website, where you'll also find all the links you need to watch the videos and hear more Jubilee Line stories. Our third and final feature takes us from fine art to forensics. If you've seen shows like CSI, you might think that forensic evidence is the ultimate form of evidence, with the power to crack criminal cases once and for all. Forensics seems like an exact objective science that provides the truth as to who done it. But what if the people responsible for gathering and analysing that evidence are making decisions that end up sending investigations down the wrong track? I went to speak with Professor Ruth Morgan, who founded UCL Centre for Forensic Science. And she's taking us back. Back to skeletons. Back to skeletons. <laughs> cool, so yeah, so one of the things... Before we hit record, really Ruth joked with me about how her job involves not just writing papers and reading literature, but also firing guns and burying fake skeletons. One of the strands Ruth's team are investigating is how human decision-making in forensics impacts on criminal cases. She told me about an experiment in which she and colleague Dr. Sharina Kaiserder tested whether or not participants correctly identified a skeleton as male or female. We set up a series of experiments where we had a male skeleton that was buried in a grave along with a number of artefacts that you'd often find in graves like coins and phones um, and clothing. And we got our participants to excavate the grave, recover the skeletal remains, bring them back to the laboratory, lay them out and then assess whether the skeleton was male or female. And um, we did this with a very clearly male skeleton. And how do you tell the difference between 
genders of the skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are a number of ways. Generally speaking, the pelvic area is the place where there's the most discrimination between male and female. So we've got three groups of people trained in the art of looking at skeletons and one skeleton, a male skeleton. So our first group um, excavated their grave and when they were excavating the grave, there were female clothing in the grave. A pink dress, high heels, that sort of thing. They brought the skeleton back to the lab and they then did the sex estimation. And in that group, one person said that the male skeleton was male. Two people said it was possibly male. Five people said they couldn't determine whether it was male or female. And three people said it was possibly female. Out of 11 people, only one got it right, even though the skeleton was an obviously male skeleton. We then did the same experiment again. The only difference this time was that the clothing in the grave was neutral, neutral clothing. A pair of denim jeans, trainers and a grey T-shirt. Same thing happened. Back to the lab, skeleton out, sex estimation. And in that group, seven people said that the male skeleton was male. Two people said it was possibly male and one person said they couldn't determine whether it was male or female. This time, out of 12 people, seven people got it right. The third group was a control group who didn't see the skeleton in the grave with any clothing, but just on its own in the lab. This was to see if it was the clothing causing the difference in results or whether it was something else. For example, something weird about Mr Skeleton himself causing people to get the sex estimation wrong. For this group, we laid out the skeleton in the lab and we just got them to come into the lab and say is the skeleton male or female? And when we did that, every single person said that the male skeleton was male. The control group saw the skeleton without any clothing and all 15 people correctly identified it as male. So what that was indicating is that the external factors that the participants were exposed to at the crime scene was having some form of impact in terms of what they were ultimately understanding the evidence to mean later down the line. And this is something that we've called cascade bias. So... Um, an impact at one point continuing to cascade through the process and impact what we understand the evidence to mean later down the line. So if humans have a tendency for this sort of bias, couldn't we just remove them from the process altogether? Isn't there technology that can do the job for us? I'm convinced that we're going to have a lot more automation in the future, but we're not going to have a scenario where everything is done by computers and AI and machine learning. We're going to have to have people involved because there are certain things that people can only people can do. So every crime is different. You need that expert to be able to be able to identify the, the extraneous factors that are really critical to making sure we get the right evidence and package it in the right way and ensure that the right tests are done. Can you think of an example um, of... Why, why would you use a human? So I suppose fingerprints is quite a good example. So in the databases that we have, you have prints that have been taken under set circumstances. So they've been taken very deliberately. That's what's in the database. But then when you're recovering marks from a crime scene, so that would be on the edge of a door or on a weapon or on an object that's had some cleaning products on it or whatever it might be, you've got marks. So they're not these nice, pristine, clear prints. They're, they're marks where there might well have been a some movement or um, a partial mark or um, a mark that's then had parts of it that have become very unclear. So you're often looking at a smudge to a print. What we're seeing is that at the moment, the technological approaches are very good with the prints and you can get some very, very good distinctions being made. But when you're looking at smudges, for want of a better word, that's where a human approach can be incredibly valuable because an experienced examiner begins to be able to interpret 
ah, okay, we're seeing um, a mark that has been smudged through a clockwise action. Actually, I think what we're seeing is something that's upside down. If we turn it around, then maybe we can see a few more. So So there's a lot more going on and you'll get a lot more information out of that smudge from a human than if it was just part of a big data set that a computer system was 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 looking at. Okay, so humans have skill sets that can't simply be replaced by technology. And yet we're still left with the problem of their weakness towards bias. Those kinds of decisions, particularly in conditions of uncertainty, are susceptible to these external factors. And I don't think you're ever going to get rid of that because that's how our brains are wired. It's how we're able to do a whole host of different complex things Um, is what makes us unique. But there must be some way of overcoming this. How could those external factors be compensated for with Mr Skeleton, for example? So it's not a case of eliminating those kinds of impacts. It's it's mitigating as as much as possible. So there are a number of approaches that have been um, put out there in terms of how to minimise the impact of those kinds of factors. You could probably go one of two ways. There's an argument to be said for simply providing the skeletal remains to an examiner in the lab without any other information. But the issue is that often in forensic science, that isn't the question, that's not the only question you need to answer. And actually a lot of that contextual information can actually provide really valuable clues as to what it is your, um, what kind of situation you're investigating. So there are a number of different things. One is to segment that process. So different people do different parts. So one person excavates, one person does the sex estimation. Or documenting all the potential opportunities for these kinds of extraneous pieces of information to have entered into the decision-making process so that when the conclusion is reached, there's also a clear route to that decision that documents potential sources of information that might have influenced it. Because you want to maximise the benefit of being able to see that whole picture It's ensuring that we're getting the best out of the people and the technology. We'll be hearing more from Professor Ruth Morgan next time, when we'll be looking at a situation in which technology is doing too good a job. And we'll learn about how your DNA might be on a murder weapon that you've never seen before in your life. at UCL the podcast is produced by me Susie McCarthy the executive producer is Nina Garthwaite and mixing support has come from Mike Woolley we'd like to thank all our researchers for welcoming us into their labs and offices hashtag made at UCL is a campaign that brings to life disruptive thinking from UCL research presented in this episode was nominated and selected because of the impact it's made on everyday life and society this episode is brought to you from UCL Minds Events, lectures and podcasts open to everyone.